2: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio, the last one of the unofficial summer here. I am delighted to be joined by a great group, including Rosa Brooks, who is currently at an undisclosed location near near the water, how are you today, Rosa?
0: I am very well, thank you, David.
2: And in New York City, we've got our friend Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations and regularly of the Washington Post. How are you doing, Max? I'm good, thank you. And uh, also joined today by Stephen Wertheim of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. How are you today, Stephen?
3: I'm doing okay, and thanks for having me on.
2: Oh, no, glad to have you back. So this uh, episode's going to air just around the time that Joe Biden's deadline for leaving Afghanistan comes up. A couple or three weeks ago, when the Taliban entered Kabul, there was a lot of immediate reaction assessing Biden's plan for getting out by today. A lot has happened in those couple of weeks, and there are a lot of perspectives on it. And I thought we might we might benefit from a, a discussion that covered a range of those perspectives. Let me start with you, Rosa. What's your perspective as we approach the deadline?
0: We are where we are. I mean, the various things that I wish Biden had done differently, uh, it's too late to do them differently. And so I think he is right to move forward with the continued withdrawal at this point. I am... Simultaneously relieved and worried by his reaction to the bombing at Kabul Airport, relieved in the sense that I was fearful that it might make him say, "Oh, never mind. I guess we have to stay and fight for another twenty years." And I'm relieved that he was very, very clear: nope, not not doing that, notwithstanding this. Um, but I am a little. I'm disturbed by the you know the news that okay, so we we've done a a drone strike which looks like it's killed children and so on. And I, that sort of cycle of kind of tit for tat retaliatory violence, I think is really dangerous. One, we've, we've been trapped in it for 20 years. In the abstract, there's a really clear distinction between strikes that are preventive in nature and strikes that are revenge in nature. It's hard, you know, I don't know the details of this, obviously, but this sort of seems like under the circumstances, one that blurs the line. And I also think it's hard to maintain the the moral high ground if we're saying, even if we're saying this is preventive in nature, if we're saying, well, we had to kill a bunch of children so that, you know, you don't kill a bunch of children, that doesn't tend to go anywhere good.
1: Max, where, what do you think of where we are right now? Well, as you know, David, this is one issue where you and I disagree, and I suspect I'm, I am a minority of one on this panel, but I would echo the assessment of Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, a former Marine who just briefly visited Kabul and came back saying that the withdrawal is a total fucking disaster, if I'm allowed to say that word on your uh, podcast. And I I, I agree with that. I think the saving grace of it, of course, is the fact that U.S. forces have evacuated more than 120,000 people and they will have a chance at freedom. And so I think that is that is a real achievement. That is something to be very grateful for. And I'm very glad that Biden did that. And while I'm confident that Trump would have also pulled out, I have no confidence whatsoever that Trump would have ordered this kind of airlift to get all of these vulnerable Afghans out of the country. And I think that is a real achievement. But I would quote Winston Churchill after Dunkirk when he said, wars are not won by evacuations. And this evacuation does not change the fact that we have lost this war at great cost. And 38 million people in Afghanistan are still going to be consigned to the rule of the Taliban, including many U.S. allies, including many students, including many women who will suffer greatly. And I think the area where you and I probably disagree the most, David, is whether this was inevitable. I don't think it was. There's no question that Trump negotiated one of the worst deals of all time with the Taliban, legitimating the Taliban, freeing 5,000 Taliban prisoners, and committing the U.S. To a timeline for a withdrawal. But Biden has repudiated many other mistakes that, that Trump made, and he could have repudiated this one. I don't think there was anything inevitable about the US pullout that Biden announced in April. The In February, the, the Afghanistan study group, which was the congressionally chartered, chartered bipartisan panel of experts, recommended that we change to a conditions-based withdrawal, i.e. that we only leave if there was real progress in the peace talks. And in the meantime, they Judge that if we slightly increase the U.S. force presence to 4,500 troops remaining in a primarily an advisory and assistance capacity, that that would be sufficient to keep the Taliban at bay. And, And the reality remains that when Biden pulled the plug on the U.S. commitment in April, the government remained in control of every single city. Girls were still enrolled in schools and there were not mobs of refugees flooding the Kabul airport. I like Joe Biden, I voted for him, but I think And, you know, he's vastly preferable to the Republican alternatives. But I think this is an own goal of epic proportions. And I'm very sorry that he did this. And I think that he will pay a political price and the U.S. will pay a political price for what he has done, in addition to the human price being paid by the people of Afghanistan. David.
3: Well, we have lost the war, and that's a terrible thing. And I say that even though uh, I thought the war itself was wrong uh, for most of the 20-year period in which the United States has waged it. But I think, unfortunately, there would have been one thing more terrible, more tragic than the Taliban takeover of the country that we've witnessed over the past several weeks, and that is continuing the war. That would be continuing an effort that was not sustainable. There was no equilibrium. It was not low cost for thousands of Afghans dying every year, a rate that was increasing in recent years, not decreasing. And so I think that there was no way for this war to end well. A war that you lose to the Taliban cannot end in some happy scene, unfortunately, unless you think the Taliban are magnanimous and will be very cooperative, and their rule won't be repressive. Of course, that's not the case. But unfortunately, we did lose the war. And I think it's important to accept that fact. I take heart in the fact that the evacuation has proceeded, unfortunately, with bloodshed, but in a heroic way to get perhaps 120,000 people out of the country. I think that's a great thing. So I think there are some Good things to praise at the end of this, but to do a bit of a rejoinder to what Max said, I hope that those Americans, and it's a vast majority of the American public who wanted to end America's war in Afghanistan, will credit the president, not blame him for ending this war. And I think it's entirely appropriate for Congress to look at how the execution of the withdrawal was done. But that should be done in the context of investigating the entire 20-year war effort that put Joe Biden in this position. So there's been a lot of loose talk blaming him. And I think a lot of that comes from a kind of hubris, the same kind of hubris that got us into the war, that somehow believes that when we couldn't defeat the Taliban after 20 years, somehow we can lose the war to the Taliban and make it look like victory. That's just a fantasy.
1: I just jump in with to make one one brief point because I think we're all going to agree to disagree about whether the U.S. should have maintained a, a residual presence in Afghanistan, as advocated by our senior military leadership. Advice that Joe Biden ignored. We can we can debate the pros and cons of that, but I think one thing I I don't know if if we'll agree on this, but I think there is certainly even people who support the withdrawal. A lot of them are saying that one key blunder was the fact that. Biden did not make any move to evacuate our Afghan allies, the translators and the others, when it would have been much easier to do so at a time when we still held multiple air bases, when the government of Afghanistan was still in existence, when we still had Afghan partners and allies on the ground, there was in the spring, this is not and this is not second guessing with the benefit of hindsight, because in the spring, you had bipartisan members of Congress. Republicans and Democrats, many with military experience you had veterans groups, they were all saying, please, President Biden, please get our allies out of there, just as the U.S. troops are being gotten out of there. And the White House basically ignored that advice. And as a result of that, they didn't start a massive airlift until after Kabul had already fallen. And that resulted in those horrific scenes at the Kabul airport that resulted in unnecessary loss of life, including, I think, the 13 Americans who were killed in the suicide bombing at, at the airport on, on Thursday, even if you think that we should have gotten out, this was not the way to get out. Rosa, do you want to respond to that?
0: No, oh, I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, I think I think my position is somewhere in between Stevens and Max's. Um, but when I say that, I, I think Biden is right at this point not to not to let the events of the last week change, saying we are withdrawing. We, you know, we are. We're going forward with that. I think that's right. But that is not the same thing as saying, you know, as I said, I think I think the events of the last couple of weeks happened. We can't change them now. But let's not kid ourselves that it wasn't a complete disaster in many ways, in many ways avoidable.
2: What do you think about what Max has said, Stephen?
3: I think it is if you phrase it in the form of a question rather than a certain indictment, it's a fair question and it's a question that should be posed and investigated by Congress, along with a wider investigation to the fundamental problem, which was a 20-year unsuccessful war. I do think that the administration has made also valid points, though, in defending itself and explaining why it didn't evacuate more Afghans sooner, in particular, that understandably the, the government of Afghanistan didn't want to make it look like The United States had no confidence in its ability to fight. From most reports, the administration did not think that the fall of Kabul would happen as quickly as it did. I rather doubt that the Taliban thought that it would come into possession of the entire country as quickly as it did. So, in hindsight, if we knew for a certainty what would happen, of course, absolutely, the administration should have tried to get out as many people as soon as it. Understood the inevitability and the timing of the collapse of the Afghan national government. But, you know, I'm a historian by training. We have to understand what was known and knowable and reasonable and the trade offs, how all this looked at the time. So, reasonable question obviously, just an endless number of uh, tragedies over the past several weeks, as there were tragedies throughout throughout the war but we have to make this criticism i think in a in a sensitive way
2: so let me go back i'm going to go go to all three of you and ask a question that pivots off of something else max said um and 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 that was the suggestion that there's some debate about whether this outcome was inevitable now you know i've participated in a number of these debates and one of the problems is that sometimes We're using the same term to describe different ideas. Like, was it inevitable that the Taliban take over? Was it inevitable that we leave? Was it inevitable that we write this off as a loss? Was it inevitable that there was chaos in the streets at the end, as has happened here? Was it inevitable that the government of Afghanistan and the military would fall so quickly? Rosa, what do you think was inevitable?
0: I think that the Afghan government would fall to the Taliban was about as close to inevitable as you can get in human events. Like Stephen, you know, nothing, it is never possible to say with 100% certainty. But I think that virtually all Afghan observers and experts predicted that the Afghan government would fall to the Taliban, that the dispute was over how quickly how quickly, under what terms uh, and with what speed. So that was probably-
1: Rosa, you mean inevitable that they would fall if we withdrew all of our forces, right?
0: Correct, yes, yes, sorry, correct. That if the US fully withdrew all forces that the Taliban would take over and the only uncertainty really was the timing I think approaching this with, with due humility, because it is, it is true, you know, none of, us, none of us were in those briefing rooms. None of us were in those planning rooms. We don't know precisely what conversations occurred. We don't know precisely what information was provided to the planners. I, I find the arguments that, oh, gee whiz, we couldn't possibly have prevented the humanitarian catastrophe that occurred disingenuous. I, I don't want to speak in terms of inevitabilities or not uh, or certainties, but it does seem that does seem disingenuous to me. And again, I mean, I, that is the point I've made the last couple of episodes in a row. I don't hugely blame anybody in the U.S. government for screwing up because I think people screw up. You know, we just do because we're, we're human and we have imperfect information and we, we make mistakes. So I don't I don't for one minute think that this was anything other than good faith screw up. But I would rather that we not try to pretend that it wasn't a screw up. You know, I think we need to own it. I think we need to say, you know, we we think it was right to withdraw, but we handled that really badly um, and people lost their lives as a result. And we are going to try to figure out why things went so badly wrong. Why did we not have better information? Or if we had the right information, why did we make bad decisions? What could we have done differently with a view to learning whatever lessons there are to be learned. I, that That is what I would like to be hearing from administration representatives at this point.
2: Max, I want to have you respond to the same question, but because I have so much respect for you, I'd like to ask you to do it with one arm tied behind your back. And that is, I'd like to set aside for a moment the discussion about whether or not we could have stayed because this administration said they weren't going to stay. And the last administration said they weren't going to stay. And somewhere, as of August first, between sixty and seventy-five percent of the American people said we should leave. In the event we were leaving, in something roughly like this time frame, what do you think was inevitable and what wasn't?
1: Well, I mean, I think it was inevitable that you would have this collapse of the of the Afghan military that we saw. There was no question. I think. Analytically, that this this was going to happen. I mean, the, the intelligence community may have been off by a few months in terms of their prediction of how quickly it would happen, but they were very clear up very up front that there, that the Afghan government could not last long by itself without any U.S. support. And it wasn't just the U.S. troops, which was which were down to about twenty five hundred, three thousand near the end. There was also something like eight thousand allied troops, the Europeans mainly, who were willing to stay and did not want to pull out. And critically, I think there were also 17,000 contractors. And that was actually the critical element in our pullout, because for 20 years, we had advised and created an Afghan military that became utterly reliant on the kind of high tech enablers that the contractors provided. And uh, keeping the Afghan Air Force flying, keeping the Afghan army supplied with all these units spread around the vast country and very isolated outposts. There was just no way for the Afghan government to keep the military going absent the, the support provided by the contractors and to some extent also by the small number of U.S. troops and advisors and air power and all the rest of it. And it was just heartbreaking to read, for example, this article by General Sami Sadat in the New York Times, who was one of the best officers in the Afghan army and whose men were fighting hard until the end in in Helmand Province, writing about what a devastating blow was this summer to have the contractors leave and they took not only the all the support with them they took the proprietary software that they had been using that the afghan military had been using to track its units and the enemy and and coordinate operations so it was basically the, the afghan military just felt completely helpless and abandoned and i think you know it's i'm upset at the way that, that president biden and so many others are are trying to put this failure on the afghan military I mean, yes, there were a lot of guys who ran away and there was a lot of corruption and a lot of issues. But I mean, the Afghan security forces were fighting hard. They suffered at least 66,000 fatalities over the last 20 years, compared to about 2,400 for US forces and, and many more wounded in action. So they paid pretty heavily and they were willing, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were willing to fight hard hard as long as they had the support they felt they needed to continue doing so. And then that support was just yanked away from them this summer. And so I don't think we should be surprised by the rapid unraveling or the collapse. But again, to come back to your point and to remove my one arm from behind my back, I will get back to arguing that this was not inevitable, that that yes, 70% of the American public wanted US forces gone, but most of them were not paying close attention. There was no real passion to their, to their concern. They weren't marching on the streets. I think Biden had a lot of leeway to do what he thought was best. And that was why, for example, President Obama, when he left office, he didn't pull the troops out, although I'm sure he would have loved to have done that, but he was afraid of all what happened because he listened to the advice that he was getting from the Pentagon and, and the intelligence community, and they warned him about what would happen. So he didn't pull the troops out. Biden basically came in, and I think he's been hell-bent on doing this ever since he lost the debate over the surge in 2009. And he proceeded to do it anyway, even though he was warned about what the consequences would be. So, We can't pretend this was an intelligence failure or pretend that we were surprised. I think everybody saw this who's been paying attention saw this coming from a long way away. Stephen, same question to you.
3: Well, I'm not sure how many arms I get, so I'll use both if I can. Yep,
2: go ahead. Use both arms.
3: As I listened to Rose and Max, you know, I think that the fundamental assumption that underlay the problems with the withdrawal was the lack of knowledge or the lack of belief in the administration that the government in Kabul would fall when it did. I believe that the administration, had it known that that was going to happen, would have evacuated people much sooner. And hopefully there would have been a more orderly and humane transition. But again, it's very easy to say that in hindsight, this is the mistake people looking at events in real time always make. And perhaps one of the reasons why the administration's assessment wasn't correct was that as the Afghanistan papers uncovered by Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post reveal for many years, military leaders and civilian leaders were exaggerating their success in training the Afghan security forces. You know, some of them I think harbored doubts privately uh, that were not conveyed publicly. Uh, others, I think, believed what they were saying. Perhaps it's the some of the dynamics that sustained the US war effort on the belief that we were actually building a nation, building a state, when in fact it looks like quite possibly no building was actually occurring, that may have hampered the withdrawal as well.
2: Rosa, I want to go now to a point that you made. Which was uh, we are where we are, where now at the end of this, last U.S. diplomatic personnel will be out. Secretary Blinken does not expect, apparently, uh, for us to have permanent presence there on the ground at least for a while. U.S. military will be out. We know a little more though than we might have known or expected, even two weeks ago. We 120,000 people were airlifted out. As a point of comparison. In the one year after we left Vietnam, 150,000 Vietnamese were allowed out, although that number primarily came to the United States. We had a different attitude towards refugees at the time. But the White House announced yesterday that along with 93 other governments, an agreement was reached to keep flights going out of the airport with the Taliban uh, for the foreseeable future. So we know that there is going to be some movement there. The Taliban has said they're going to keep the borders open. We don't know really what that's going to look like or what their retribution against those associated with the United States will be. What's the right course for the United States with regard to Afghanistan from September 1st onward?
0: I think that going forward, we have several things that we can and should do. You know, notwithstanding what I said earlier about being very concerned about the what I've read, reported about this drone strike, I think we obviously have to maintain some over the horizon counterterrorism capability. I just hope that we exercise it in a transparent, accountable and wise way, which I uh, am not convinced that we have generally done in the past. Number one. Number two, I think that we need to aggressively increase our humanitarian assistance. And we may need to do that primarily through partners or through NGOs, because obviously American money or money that is viewed as American may may cause people to face retaliation if they accept it and so on. So we're going to have to do that very, very carefully. And there too, frankly, our track record on that kind of stuff is not so great either. So I I hope we will attempt to learn the lessons of the past there without being you know, hugely optimistic that we will. I think that we should continue as much as we possibly can to get out Afghans who need to get out, whether because they are facing retaliation, because they have worked directly for the U.S., or because they are facing persecution, you know, just our ordinary refugees uh, who would qualify for asylum in another country, even if the reason for that has nothing to do with whether they've worked for the U.S. I mean, technically speaking, as an international law matter, persecution because you work for the U.S. does not qualify you as a refugee entitled to asylum under international law. I think our our obligation to resettle those people stems from something different. But we still have, as do all nations, an obligation, legal and moral, to attempt to assist any Afghan who is facing persecution on ethnic grounds, religious grounds, gender, et cetera. And we should aggressively do that. I think we should be expanding and the support for Afghans who are resettled in the United States and making it possible for as many as possible to be resettled and to make sure that they can be resettled successfully and have all of the support networks in place that they will need to do that, because obviously it's very, very difficult for families to come from a foreign culture, not necessarily knowing the language or many members of the family, not knowing the language and settle in a completely strange community. You know, all of those things, I think, are, are critically important. As with Vietnam, you know the sort of let's never again fight a land war in, in Southeast Asia. you know we should maybe add uh, Central Asia to that list, maybe expand it a little bit more beyond that too come to think of it
2: i, I think all of asia I, I think probably works, but although I know if Corey were here, she would disagree with me max what what just September first
1: what is is now what Well, I agree with what Rosa said I mean. You know, I came here myself as with my family as refugees from the Soviet Union. And, you know, we were tremendously helped by HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. I've made a little donation just now to HIAS to help them help Afghan refugees. And I know there's millions of other Americans who are doing similar things, whether making donations or outreach or whatever, and trying to help resettle these Afghan refugees, as well as the incredible efforts being made by some of our veterans to get people out of Afghanistan which I think will continue now, even after the pullout of the US forces. And I certainly think that President Biden should task uh, the US intelligence community and the US military with helping to get more people out of Afghanistan, to the extent that we're able to do so. And obviously, we should be using a whole of government and a whole of society effort to help resettle and to welcome Afghan refugees. And this is not going to be purely an act of altruism, because these people are going to be tremendous assets our country and I think about you know for example the the girls robotic team that managed to escape from from Afghanistan. The girls
0: robotics team that was not actually single-handedly saved by that random woman in Ohio or whatever.
1: Exactly. That was I mean that was BS but the fact that they were saved is a is a tremendous good deed. And it's one that you know it's going to do long term damage to to Afghanistan, unfortunately to be losing all of this human capital, but it's going to be a tremendous asset for the United States and the other countries where these people wind up. I mean these Mm -hmm. are Uh, some of the best of the best. And I think we're going to benefit greatly by by helping them in terms of uh, Afghanistan going forward. I mean, as Rosa said, I think we have to try to do our best with an over the horizon type of counterterrorism strategy. But I have grave doubts as to how successful that's going to be because we've lost our partners and enablers on the ground. We've lost the networks that we built up for 20 years. And there's a real risk right now of dropping bombs on the wrong people. And we don't know what happened with that supposed V-bed that was bombed, I guess it was yesterday, by a US drone strike. Now, we discovered that there were a lot of children in that car. Now, maybe was it, was it actually a V-bed or not? We don't know. I think we have to investigate that. But we have to be pretty wary right now that we are becoming dependent on our enemies, the Taliban, for intelligence. And they're not necessarily going to give us the correct intelligence. And we can't really rely on them to tell us who to bomb, even if we think that the enemy of our enemy is our our friend. I think that's we should be wary of that kind of thinking. We should still try to establish, if we can reestablish intelligence assets and, and outposts near Afghanistan, I don't know if we're going to be able to do that because the Russians are working so hard to keep us out of Central Asia, but we should do our best. We should think about how to calibrate sanctions on Afghanistan in a way that injures the Taliban leadership but doesn't do more damage to the people of Afghanistan which i think is going to be you know a very difficult balancing act to pull off basically you know i think to use a technical term that we that we like to use in foreign policy circles i think we're screwed right now i don't think we have a lot of good options to switch metaphors we're just trying to make the best of a very bad hand and right now we just don't have a lot of influence over what's going to happen in Afghanistan and especially whether or not it becomes a base for international terrorism We'll have to deal with the consequences of that, but I'm not sure we can prevent it from happening at this point. Steven?
3: I agree very much with most of what Rose and Max have said. I am concerned. You know, I was
2: not counting on widespread agreement breaking out during this podcast.
3: I apologize. I'm now going to do my best to to disagree. Okay, good. I, I am concerned that there will be some Poor impulses from the United States that might lead us to, again, get involved militarily in a way that is counterproductive. Rosa talked about some of that through uh, drone strikes that are not very well limited and potentially efforts coming from congress and elsewhere to try to get the united states to back enemies of the taliban on the ground in afghanistan there's a lot more to that will unfold about the extent to which the new government of afghanistan is able to govern the country is stable and and so forth and that will i think very much affect us policy going forward i would say that i hope that the Sanctions. I I don't expect that there will be zero sanctions uh, coming from the United States on members of the Taliban uh, or people associated with the Taliban. But I do hope that there is going to be a fundamental choice to make. And I hope that the needs of the Afghan people, even if it means giving up potentially some leverage over the Taliban, will be prioritized and that we don't get into another open ended round of large scale sanctions on a country, this one of the very poorest countries in the world. And I would also add to that, you know, I think this is a best case scenario, but if uh, it does prove to be politically successful in the United States to, to welcome refugees, to be better, not just in terms of quantity, but also in quality, in terms of our efforts to welcome and integrate refugees from Afghanistan into the United States, perhaps it could be the beginning of a new kind of American humanitarianism that doesn't measure the extent of our humanitarian impulses by how many countries we bomb, how many people we sanction, but actually focuses on directly helping people. And admitting refugees is one of those actions that clearly helps people, and doesn't get us involved in a hazardous calculus about how military intervention might potentially help some people by killing other people.
2: As those of you who are listening will note, I'm not weighing in on this. And and the reason I'm not weighing in on this is I've written an infinity number of articles on this subject, and I literally don't have any words left in my brain. They've appeared everywhere, and I've had the shit kicked out of me all over the internet in every neighborhood, the good neighborhoods and the bad neighborhoods for saying what I've said, which is, I believe pulling out was right. I believe the president deserves credit for it. I believe it was courageous, as Max has has indicated. I, I do want to say one thing, which is we spent 20 years in Afghanistan with the objective of containing a terror threat, and what happened over the course of the 20 years Is that the number of terrorists in the world increased a hundredfold and the places they were stopped being Afghanistan and started being everywhere else. And so right now, if you were to go and identify where there are Al-Qaeda cells or ISIS cells or, or so on, you'll find that they're across Africa, North Africa, across the Middle East, into Asia, and elsewhere. And so having US troops on the ground for 20 years didn't achieve that principal goal. As we look back at the past 20 years, now that we finally left to use the term of art that Max provided us with, and of course, since he works at the Council on Foreign Relations, this is kind of, you know, serious term of art. Rosa, what was our biggest screw up in Afghanistan?
0: The original sin was going in with what Started as a relatively narrow mission and almost instantly expanded to a ridiculously impossible mission to, you know, bring stability, restore democracy, get rid of the Taliban, give everybody rights, turn Afghanistan into a modern country. That was the, I think, the original sin. And then ever since then, we've been kind of waffling back and forth between Oh yeah, that's totally what we're doing, or oh no, we're totally not doing that. We're doing something more modest, but we're not quite sure what it is. And even we're not even gonna fully resource whatever more modest thing we think we're gonna do. So we were, you know, we were always ambivalent about what we were doing, and we were never willing to resource any of what we were doing fully in any case. So even if that ex- more expansive mission had made sense, we were undercutting it even at even during the moments we claimed to be pursuing it. So th- that I think is the, you know, that was the sort of original mistake. And I am not an expert on this, so I'll defer to those of you who who know more. But my my understanding is that there were early indications from the Taliban back in to shortly after the December 11th attacks that they were kind of willing to hand al-Qaeda to us on the plate if only we wouldn't destroy them. And we probably should have taken that offer. You know, I mean, who knows what the world would be like if we had said, OK, we think you guys are a bunch of shitheads too, but... The real shitheads we're after are not you. We're going to go after them and we're going to leave it at that. And by the way, don't do that again or else, um, you know, the world might be a very different place.
2: No doubt. Max, Rose has given the correct answer, but I'll give you a chance to give a different answer.
0: I mean, I I largely agree with
1: what Rose said, although I don't think that there was any point where the Taliban said we will hand over al-Qaeda if you leave us alone. In fact, that was the ultimatum that was made by the Bush administration, either hand over bin Laden and al-Qaeda or we're going in and get them. And the Taliban refused to hand them over, and they basically had a close relationship with with Al Qaeda that never ended and remains to the present day. Every president has made major blunders over the last twenty years, starting with Bush, uh, where I don't think he put enough resources into standing up the Afghan government and, and rebuilding the Afghan military, and then he got distracted and pulled U.S. resources into a war of choice in Iraq. I think that was a big mistake. I think. Obama made a mistake with his surge and putting the time limit on it. So I think we either should have surged or not. But if we were going to surge, we shouldn't have put a time limit on it. And that was clearly a mistake. I think Trump made a monumental mistake with his ca- catastrophic deal with the Taliban, where he legitimated the enemy, undermined the government, and forced the release of 5,000 terrorists. That did huge damage to our allies' position in, in Afghanistan. But ultimately, to get back to your question, I think the biggest mistake we made in Afghanistan was the final one, because at the end of the day, I think even after 20 years of mistakes, we had basically gotten to a, to a point where our commitment was more or less sustainable. And I think you can argue that we made a mistake by trying to go up to 100,000 troops and, and mounting a major counterinsurgency. During the Obama years, you can argue we didn't have the staying power or commitment to do that. that was, and that resulted in heavy casualties. But over the last five years, five or six years, we downsized the mission considerably to an advise and assist capacity where we had at at the end only 2,500 troops. Maybe we needed 4,500, something like that. But nobody was saying that we needed to send U.S. troops back into, into ground combat, which would be the costliest and worst option. We had basically found a way to enable the Afghans to fight for themselves with U.S. logistics, enablers, air support, intelligence, and all the rest of it. And I think that was basically... It wasn't satisfying. It wasn't a victory. We weren't defeating the Taliban, but they weren't winning either. It was basically, I would argue, a stalemate in in April with the Taliban expanding in the countryside, but the government holding on to every city. And I think that kind of stalemate could have been continued. And so I think Biden made a made a huge mistake, both from the standpoint of, of US strategic interests, and I think also from his own political interests, because I think it's maddening and it's infuriating that Republicans and Trump in particular started this withdrawal, but now they're going to hammer Biden over it. And just the same, uh, they don't mind being hypocritical and inconsistent. And Biden is going to pay the political price for what was a, until just like a month ago was a bipartisan policy. So, Stephen, Rosa has said
2: that the the big screw up was the first one and Max has said the big screw up was the last one. You could <laughs> choose either of those or something in between.
3: I'll certainly take the first one, though I also just have to quickly say I do not think there was a sustainable war over the last five, six years. This is a war in which the Taliban were making steady gains. This was a war in which ISIS-K, the group that uh, attacked our troops, completing the evacuation and killed hundreds of Afghans, emerged in this time. So that was the so-called sustainable war. Uh, in which Afghan casualties and deaths were going up, not down, including civilian deaths. So that, to me, is uh, in no sense uh, sustainable. All right. Uh, I do think that the the original sin came came quickly. It came when the United States set out after 9-11 to do something that wasn't to make itself secure. It was to try to prove that, having been hit and humiliated on nine eleven, we were going to do something spectacular, transform other parts of the world, other countries, an entire region of the world, and that's, I think, one of the deeper reasons why the mission in Afghanistan began just and limited, decimating Al Qaeda, punishing the Taliban for harboring Al Qaeda, but expanded well beyond that to and. Sometimes something that was almost indescribable, but you might sum it up as a kind of state-building mission. And, uh, and that's also why the United States, I'm afraid, did things like invade Iraq. And I'll disagree also with what Max said about that. I think if the United States had poured in the number of troops to Afghanistan that it uh, ended up sending to Iraq, I do not think that would have made the situation in Afghanistan better, possibly the contrary. The Taliban had been decimated very quickly after the uh, initial post-9-11 strikes. Uh, And so I think the key question is, why did the Taliban, why was it able to come back and mount an insurgency in 2004? And the continued presence of the U.S. military in the country at that point, I think is a significant part of the explanation. So we should have drawn down much more quickly and not engaged in something that was, I think, destined to produce a forever war because the objective was essentially unachievable.
1: I think it's a, just a historical mistake to argue that we stayed in Afghanistan and expanded our mission because we had these grandiose ambitions of creating this Jeffersonian democracy and showpiece of, of good governance uh, in, in Central Asia. I don't think that was the impetus at all. I think the impetus was much simpler than that, much starker, which was. We were afraid that if we pulled out, the whole thing would collapse and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda would come back. So we were not, I mean, although we we made noises about women's rights and, and democracy and that other all that other kind of stuff, I think the driving impulse was actually much more realpolitik and much more defensive. We just wanted to create a government that could maintain a semblance of control to keep the Taliban and Al-Qaeda out and we were never able to to create a government strong enough to do that without continuing without a continuing us troop presence you know one of the things
2: that i have missed over the course of the past 2 to 3 weeks and perhaps one of the reasons why i felt compelled to write so many different articles and do so many different tv and radio shows is that it's very hard to have a rational discussion about this stuff in the united states right now it's very hard to have a serious conversation about serious topics with serious people because they so often are reduced to, you know, this side versus that side and sort of the intellectual equivalent of a cage match. And um, that's why I, I, I felt it was important to bring a range of views here and to have that kind of discussion. And that's the kind of thing that I hope we will continue to do. I I do want to pick up on a point also that Max made, and I haven't really discussed this with our production team, but I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of Afghans in the United States who need support. I know the New York Times and the Washington Post have both put together good lists of organizations to which you can donate to help those Afghans in this country. Uh, And I'd like to ask Grant Haver, who is producing this, to uh, when we put this pod up and, and go to and at the website let's publish the the lists that the times and the post have put up or any other good lists that we've got so that people know where they can donate and help out so we'll do that and you can find that at our website at the dsrnetwork.com you can also find a place there to click on membership and support what we do and you can find out what else we've got coming up uh with programs later in the month and for uh, the months ahead, all at the dsrnetwork.com. In the meantime, thank you to Rosa. Thank you to Max. Thank you to Steven. Thank you to everybody for listening. And still pretty dangerous out there as far as COVID and other things go. So folks, take care of yourselves. Be safe. Bye-bye.